the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 8th of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, will announce Budget 2019 tomorrow. The Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said this weekend to expect cuts in income tax and the universal social charge. Mr Varadkar also said that the social welfare and pension package will reverse the cuts of the last decade. The speculation is of a €5 increase for all welfare recipients. Tomorrow will outline government's plans for spending 3.4 billion euro next year. 2.6 billion has already been put aside, however, and will pay for public sector pay hikes and demographics. Uh, the remaining 800 million will be split two to one with spending taking more than tax cuts. On top of this, however, is a move to reverse a VAT cut to the hospitality sector and restore the rate to 13.5% from the current rate of 9%. This is estimated to raise €400 million next year, giving the government much more spending power. Add to that an extra €1 billion windfall in unexpected corporation tax and spending options are even better, although €700 million of that amount is expected to cover an overspend in health. Sean Healy is uh, the Director of Social Justice Ireland and On The Line, and you're saying, Sean, that we have the resources in tomorrow's budget to address some of the key challenges and social injustices that Irish people are facing in this country. Uh, Do you believe that now that the budget is all but written that that is what we're going to get? I doubt it, Michael. I doubt it very much. I think when we look at what we have, we've over 800,000 people in poverty of whom a quarter of a million are children. 
We have seven, over 700,000 people waiting for health care. They're on the waiting list to one guy another. We have 87,000 households on waiting list for social housing. We have 10,000 people homeless. Uh, we have 10, uh, 15 to 18,000 um, waiting um, for uh, more than 18 months uh, on uh, the homeless list, for example. So we're talking about a government that has failed to respond to the nation's crisis. Like we obviously, on one hand, can say Ireland is doing very well on a range of fronts. GDP is growing, unemployment is low, our population is rising. You know, challenging fiscal targets have been achieved over the past number of years. On the other side, though, when you look at the society itself, what you see is a, is a different story altogether. What has been delivered has been delivered at a great cost. Now, the challenge is to use the resources that are there to actually uh, tackle that, uh, tackle the kinds of huge costs that are there in poverty, waiting lists and homelessness and all the rest of it. But in reality, I think what they're, if we're to believe what's being leaked, we're getting a lot of small different individual things, but nothing big. We're not kind of getting the scale of uh, investment that's going to be that's required to tackle uh, the housing problem, for example. The windfall in the unexpected corporation taxes uh, announced last week uh, are pretty big, aren't they? One thousand million euro, uh, but most of it gobbled up by per budgeting. Well, two things. One is that if you had, re- and we discussed this last June uh, when we published our policy briefing on budget choices, we actually forecast that that billion would be available. So I don't think it's a huge issue or a huge surprise to people who are actually involved with this, although the government expresses great surprise and suddenly they have a windfall and da 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 big drama. Mm. But in actual fact, I think it was, it was quite predictable. Um, the, there, I, I would still also say that they're still underestimating the money that's going to be available uh, to the minister uh, when he stands up to make his budget announcements tomorrow. But the, the scale of what's being required, like if you're talking about um, uh, the, the homeless crisis or people mm. on waiting lists or uh, overcrowded accommodation, you're talking about 80 plus thousand households on waiting lists, yet the government's own plans, if fully implemented, if they achieved everything that they set out to do, they'd only tackle half the problem, and they'd only they'd achieve that by 2022. That is simply not good enough. We have the resources, we could tackle the housing situation. This, there are three issues, there are three solutions to it. It's supply, supply, supply. Mm. You've got to build, basically, anybody knows uh, most people listening to your uh, program this morning don't have PhDs in economics, but they know that if there's a, a scarcity of supply of any product and the demand is rising for it or ahead of the supply, what happens? The price goes up. Now, that's what, we ha- that's what we've had in housing mm-hmm. year in, year out. It's very good for certain groups of people who have uh, made a lot of money out of the rising price of houses. It has been a disaster for most people because they can't now afford to buy a house or even, in many cases, to rent a house uh, or rent any kind of accommodation, apartment or whatever. And that is because of, that is a direct result of government policy over the last seven years. I suppose everybody listening to us knows uh, that if they go to the supermarket this morning with €100 Euro and they get to the till and the shopping comes to €120, Euro, they're going to have to put something back because you can't spend money that you don't have. But that is what the government has been doing. Uh, and when the Taoiseach tells us uh, that tomorrow's budget will be a 
but a balanced budget. Uh, is that the case when we realise that last year we spent seven hundred million euro that we didn't budget for on health? Precisely. Uh, just look at that health budget. Uh, you and I had a chat on this programme the morning after the last year's announcement of budget. In other words, this week last year we had a chat. And one of the things that I said to you at that, on that morning, which we published that day, uh, the Wednesday of that week, uh, we, uh, I, I talked to you about the fact that the numbers that had been put into the budget for health were false. They were not accurate. And I made it very clear the government was claiming that the existing level of service would be maintained and that they would add the, these additional projects that they named out. Now, in, in reality, I said that they were possibly five to 700 million short. It appears that they're 700 million short. Now, this is just play acting by government. In actual fact, it is highly irresponsible. They should put up proper numbers. What's actually going on is very simple. Government won't make the call on what exactly should be cost if they want the budget or the health budget to be reduced to whatever uh, the level they want it reduced to. Instead of that, they're trying to uh, sort of create a situation where the HSE uh, uh, bungles through pretending, uh, because it's directed by government to pretend, uh, that they have enough money for everything until late in the day they suddenly discover, as they do every year, mm. that they're 700 million short. Suddenly now they're going to, they, there's a great gashka, they're going to pay 700 million apparently from the billion windfall, in inverted commas, that they've got from corporation tax, and that'll clear that. But it'll only clear it for 2018. The debt will re-emerge again in 2019. And like until such time as you deal with these things and produce real numbers, uh, that, that there are issues. Like one of the things that I would be very disappointed with is the Parliamentary Budget Office has not got to grips with this issue yet. Now, it's early days, they, although they have a staff of 20-plus people, I think, at this stage. But they should be getting to grips with the fact that if there's um, uh, numbers that aren't real, they should be named. I heard uh, the chair of the Fiscal Advisory Council on radio this morning giving out about the government uh, allowing um, health to not um, to, to, to come in uh, over budget. And in, in, in actual fact, that is a complete misreading of the situation by Seamus Coffey. It is a complete uh, misreading. What's actually going on is that the, the 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 government is forcing the health system to pretend that there is enough money to deliver the existing level of service plus the new projects that they promote that they introduce, and that is simply not the case. Now, you, the, the kind of standard thing that the Minister for Finance will say, well, there's 14 billion in the budget, you can cut this amount out of it, mm. 700 million. But that's, the cutting out of it should be done by government. That's a government decision. And they then should be standing over the choices that are made. It shouldn't be the job of civil servants or people working in the HSE to be making those kinds of choices. Okay, every finance minister will hope to deliver some surprises uh, despite all of uh, the leaks and what we read uh, in advance. Uh, it quite often feels as though the budget has been announced. Uh, but this comes down to the options that he has in raising more money. Uh, and uh, what would you like to see him do that we haven't heard leaks yet? The thing that I would like to see him do most is, is deal with the housing issue. And uh, I, I think what he has to do is he has to invest uh, much more than he actually has said he will do. Mm, but where should he get the money from? 
Now, he can, he can do the, number, the money in a variety of different ways. Like, he can move towards the cost rental system, which we have been advocating and uh, which we've published a lot of stuff about, where you'd actually wind up with the, the real cost of a house would be uh, what would be sort of paid for in rent or in purchase prices, preferably in rent, uh, for uh, people on low incomes. And uh, you'd, you'd have an adjustment in the situation. Now, if you did that, if you use that type of system, you can actually take the costing off the books. And that, that would mean, why? Because it would balance over time. That The idea is that if a, co- if a house costs 170 grand or whatever it is uh, to actually uh, build that that's the real amount of money that would be uh, recovered over time and that a person would have to sort of that's would be able to rent it at the real cost as what cost rental is about but then what had that would happen uh, what, would, what would happen there is you could actually borrow substantially more than than is available at the moment you could then uh, roll that into strict directly into the provision of affordable and social housing and Take, reduce the waiting list dramatically, increase the supply dramatically. There's a very simple question I would ask government. Why don't you just build houses? The solution is to have more housing units built. What have we got? We've got a, a proposal this morning from Dunlera at Down County Council, uh, and they're, apparently they're, they're going to uh, a council meeting this evening on the budget for the county for the coming year, and they're going to sell off... 10 plots of land that they own. Now, there's 10 plots of land that could be used for social housing, for affordable housing. But instead of that, they're selling them off so that they have the money to do something else. Mm. Now, to, to, to me, that is the height of irresponsibility. And it is a classic example of what's wrong with government policy. One arm of government is saying, we need land, we don't have enough land to build houses. And another side, here's one county council, just one out of 31 mm. that are there, local authorities. Here's one selling off 10 sites to private to private uh, businesses. Now, those businesses may well be developers who, who build houses, but they will build houses and charge a lot higher prices. Okay? Mm. So, like, you've got really serious issues here. Uh, but if I was to give a priority in the budget, uh, it would be to tackle the housing issue because the housing, uh, the, what's happening in housing is damaging for society. It's damaging for the economy. It is seriously damaging uh, children. It's going to have huge roll-on effects for the economy and society for years to come. Okay, but there are many ways of raising money. You've been, you've been suggesting equalising the excise duty on petrol and diesel, which may prove very unpopular with some people. We're hearing that cigarettes will probably increase by 50 cent and there could be a, a tax on gambling. Uh, but there's also a, an expected increase in carbon tax, which means that people are going to have to pay more for the likes of coal and home heating as well, which could have a negative impact. And I think what we're talking about there, like, is is that uh, we need to face up to the fact that we have a very serious uh, climate problem uh, that needs to be addressed. Ireland is one of the worst countries at addressing uh, the climate change issue. Uh, the idea that in some way or other we can keep polluting the air, uh, uh, continue to produce CO2 and all sorts of carbon emissions, and expect that there's no downside to that. We have to face up to the fact that we have to move in a different direction. It's doable 
we could do that uh, and, and move in a, in, a, in a different direction. And we could do it, like if you, uh, and do it in a sensible way. One of the things you have to do is to make sure that if you do that, that people on low incomes aren't going to be slaughtered, if you like, really damaged by that type of move. And that's doable and can be done. Uh, and there's plenty of examples of organ, some of them that we, we ourselves have suggested. If you want to go back, go back to the point you were making uh, about, about raising taxes, the VAT issue is a critical issue there because there's half a billion euro. It appears, as though, the, it appears though as though the government is going to go further than you had suggested uh, because you were saying that that money was there but last week uh, your uh, recommendation was uh, to increase uh, or to, to restore to the, the rate to the hospitality sector but uh, it seems as though the restaurants are, are going to take a hit on this as well. But, yeah, we, were, we were suggesting that it be done on, the, on the, the hotels and rooms and so on, hotels uh, in year one and in restaurants on year two. It looks like you might do the two in the one year. Mm. Uh, the issue for us is this is a subsidy, a big subsidy to a highly profitable industry. And they keep going on about the fact that they don't, they're not making money. Has anybody tried to book a hotel room uh, in recent times? And it isn't just around central Dublin. Mm. You book, book hotels in the west of Ireland. They are costing serious money. There's been serious increases in, in, hotel, in, in hotel costs, in restaurant costs, and mm. so on. So in, in reality, there's, been, there's a half a billion euro of a subsidy going to restaurants and hotels. And I think that that's fundamentally wrong. It was done in 2014, or whenever it was introduced, uh, basically trying to, or maybe it might have been before that, back 2012, I think. Yeah. Budgets, yeah. Um, yeah. But it was done yeah. uh, basically to try to improve uh, the, 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 the sort of very difficult yeah. situation when there was nobody coming to Ireland yeah. uh, in, in, in um, holidaying in Ireland. Suddenly, we now find ourselves uh, what, six, seven mm. years later, and we have a huge amount of, of tourism and a, a very profitable industry. Mm. Well, it was and described we, at the time as a, a jobs initiative, uh, and the argument now is that it's put more money into the bank a- accounts and the profit margins of those who run these companies. That's exactly uh, the case. Uh, companies, uh, but uh, let's hope that you're right in that view, because the restaurants are saying this is going to cost thousands of jobs. I, again, this is typical of the restaurants, uh, it seems to me, like that there's, they are or they're not making profit, okay? Now, if they can't make profit without huge subsidies going on even at the highest, at the, at the busiest of times, then there's a problem with that business model in the first place. Uh, but the issue, it seems to me, is that they are, in actual fact, coining uh, very substantial profits. We've got to face up to the fact that choices have to be made. We have people who don't have accommodation there are people who are struggling for the last few years in hotels, in hotel rooms, families trying to survive with a dreadful situation and dreadful consequences down the line. We have, we're trying to bring in uh, new businesses into Ireland, all of which, or most of which would need quite a substantial number of employees from abroad because we are, we're close enough to full employment here, uh, certainly at the types of jobs, that uh, the high, high end of the jobs. So what are we doing? We're going to bring these people in. They will need accommodation. We're not providing the accommodation. The situation is going to get worse, not better. Okay. The, and the, the blindness of the, of the government not being able to see that and, and work for it. I'm not saying mm. we shouldn't bring those people in. I'm simply well, saying we plan for it properly. It, it appears as 
uh, though the government uh, will move uh, on this and perhaps further than you had uh, suggested and, and take uh, most uh, people who uh, were advantaged by that uh, VAT cut in 2012 uh, back to the original rate of 13%. We'll find out tomorrow though obviously yes, when the budget is announced and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, that is exactly always vital. Thank, thank you. you indeed. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Michael Healy Ray, an independent TD in Kerry, is with us uh, this morning uh, to talk once again, as you did before on the programme, about people going across uh, the border to have cataracts removed. Indeed, how you and some of the other independent TDs arranged for this to happen with them. Uh, but you bring to us today some amazing statistics in the amount of money that is being reimbursed uh, and how. Uh, it has increased and dramatically is an understatement to say the least uh, in terms of what was being spent uh, back in uh, 2014 compared to what was spent last year. There's a a difference of seven and a half million euro. Yeah. Well, good morning, first of all, Michael, to you and your listeners. And uh, yes, I have obtained official figures which show and prove that there has been a massive increase in the amount of people who are going across the border for their health care treatment. Now, the one thing about this is it's actually a very sad reflection on our health service because the irony of all of this is that if you, for instance, we'll just take the example of cataracts. Mm. If you have cataracts here and they're ripe and they need to be removed, it's a very simple medical procedure. It costs approximately 1,800 euros. But if you were on a waiting list here, the odds are you actually will go blind, right, mm. while waiting here, whereas you can go to the north, have the operation carried out very swiftly, very quickly, and at the same time, you can um, get the money reimbursed within about four weeks. And that's if you're waiting for a procedure that is available elsewhere in Europe, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, and this... Uh, information about the difference in spending in reimbursing people in that sense comes on foot of a, a question you put to government was uh, responded to by the Assistant National Director of uh, the Cross Border Directive in the HSE and he's seen a, a drop of 3,100 people in terms of the amount of people waiting on procedures. Yes, well you see the only reason why the amount of people going down on the list is not because of uh, the operations taking place here, it's because of the fact that people are travelling north to have the procedures carried out above there. And I mean, people will be very cross about this to think that we have hospitals that have stated the act equipment, which is lying idle for, if you take, that's 24 hours in the day, seven days a week. The, the equipment that we have should be operating. I, I would actually at this stage say it should be operating around the clock. But instead, it's not even operating for a few hours in in a day, right? Mm. And uh, this is leading to a situation where uh, people then have no choice in the world, only to to go across the border 
and uh, and have their their healthcare treatment there. And when and you it, spoke to us the last time, Michael Healy Ray, uh, we had a, a huge response from people who were very interested to think that they could go across the border and have uh, the cataracts removed before they go blind. But uh, it's not just cataracts. Uh, this refers uh, to uh, all health procedures. If you're waiting for a procedure and it is available elsewhere in Europe, for example, in Louth and Meath, there's two thousand four hundred outpatients awaiting orthopaedic surgery appointments uh, and they may be interested in that and uh, I mentioned that because it was mentioned at the annual conference of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association uh, 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 this weekend uh, Dr Donald O'Hanlon who's uh, the president was speaking a- about a lack of consultants and he said that in eye surgery services in Cork around 6,000 patients are awaiting outpatient reviews uh, and he said you're talking about people who could lose their vision permanently Oh yes of course but like I, I, I'm sorry to say that it's now he's saying that I've been saying that with many years because I personally know people who did lose their sight while waiting for operations and you're right to expand this conversation in that um, it's not just cataracts uh, in my, the county that I'm from myself mm. even though we have an excellent uh, hospital in Tralee Kerry University Hospital unfortunately it has stopped having um, carrying out operations for hip and knee operations since the beginning of last June. Now, this has resulted in many people, and uh, predominantly their elderly people, who are at home waiting, suffering in pain, with a bad hip or a bad knee, and uh, they're not even, the list isn't even moving in County Kerry. So I've started a new initiative of uh, arranging to carry those people uh, to the north. And again, I'm not happy about this because it's like we're exporting the problem to the north. And I'll give you an example of the costs to have a hip replacement in the north um, in euros. It costs 11,054 euros to have that operation. And the HSE will reimburse 10,931 euros. So to go to the north and have your operation, what it will actually cost you is 123 euros. Now, this is frightening to think that the HSE will pay you back that money within three or four weeks of coming home after the procedure. So they're able to pay for it, but they can't do it themselves. Now, that is a a sign of mismanagement by the HSE because our consultants, our orthopedic consultants in, in Ireland are excellent. They're good people. They're highly qualified people, and they should be able to do those operations in their own hospitals. And instead, the answer that I'm giving people now, if you were in County Kerry, I'm actively mm. put, I've ads in the papers this week telling people, if you're interested and have your hip or knee operation carried out immediately, contact me and I'll arrange it for you. I mean, that's a shocking uh, indictment of our health service. I'm not proud of the fact that, I, that I'm doing that. I, instead, I'm saying, isn't it a shame to holy God that I have to do that? And uh, I, I'm saying to people, I don't want the people that I'm elected to represent, I don't want them to be suffering in pain at home, so I'm offering them a solution. But I shouldn't have to do so. And the people, the management and the HSE, they should actually be, when they see an ad of mine inviting people to contact my office to discuss this, they should be hanging their heads in shame. Because it'd be the same as if a person was told in Kerry, well, if you get a puncture in your car, you'll have to go to Galway to get it fixed. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely beyond belief that we find ourselves in this situation and that we're saying to people, we will give you the money back, Mm. but we just won't do it here. 
And where does it go north of the border? Is this a private clinic that... No, it's, it's a, the hospital that I deal with is Kingsbridge uh, Hospital in Belfast. And they provide an excellent service. They take very good care of the people. And they, they, they run it as a hospital should be run. They, they, run, they run it very efficiently um, and in an excellent fashion. And uh, and they're very they're very good to deal with, and we find them very mm. work person like and very prompt in in the way they deal with our queries. And uh, like even for instance now, um, the group of people that I'll be carrying up with about their hips and knees, they're actually opening on a Sunday to do consultations with the group that I'll be taking up. So these people will leave here early of the morning. Mm. They'll go up, and on a Sunday they'll meet their consultants. They'll devise their own individual um, operations when they'll be carried out, and they'll, you know, check the people out to make sure that they're ready for the operations and for mm. the procedures on a Sunday. Why aren't we opening our clinics on a Sunday? Why aren't we open at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning until seven o'clock on a Sunday night? If they can do it above in Kingsbridge in a hospital there in Belfast, why the hell can't we do it here? Mm. But many of the people, the managers, I'm not talking about the people working or individual hospitals. They have this, they, you know, the the people in the HSE management, they have no idea of work ethic. Because if they did, they'd be waking up and realizing this is actually a shame. They should be hanging their heads in shame at the idea of people having to to use the cross-border health directive to get their health care needs. It's actually very, very... Mm. um, uh, it's a very uh, upsetting thing to actually have to think about that elderly people going travelling like that to go to the north. Do you know? Mm. But Kingsbridge is a, a private hospital, isn't it? Yes, of course it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, but mm-hmm. but like I say, this is the HSE buying the healthcare privately and using your taxpayers mm. and your listeners' taxpayers' money to pay a private hospital to do the bloody work that they should be doing here. Mm, indeed, uh, I think Kingsbridge are advertising the fact that you can skip the Irish hospital waiting queues by simply going uh, across the border and uh, availing of uh, this uh, initiative. Uh, but uh, if we weren't giving that money to a profit for care organisation, which all private healthcare operators are, what difference would it make in terms of the health budget here? Surely there's a saving in treating people south of the border in our own health service. Would you please ring the HSC and tell them what you're just after saying, because they do, they're not listening to me and other politicians. How many times have I stood up inside in the Dáil and told this to the Taoiseach? How many times have I told the Minister for Health, both on the record inside in the Dáil and both privately at meetings that I've had with him about health and health care mm. for our, our citizens? And they're just not listening. And actually, do you know, if we stand back from this and think about it, they're presumably well-educated people. But what is wrong with them that they're not able to get their head around this problem of having people waiting on the, the waiting list? I was in um, in another A&E uh, where people were really working diligently last Monday night in Limerick. And there was 120 plus people inside an A&E. And this was one and two and three o'clock in the morning. Mm. And there was people in their 80s. There was one person, 91 years of age, waiting inside on trolleys and had been waiting a considerable length of time. This was not the fault of the excellent people working inside in that A&E department. I saw firsthand, I saw the line managers, I saw the the different staff from all 
all the different grades, down to the ladies that was kindly going around and offering everybody tea and, and a boy to eat at that time of the night. They were all working very, very efficiently. But at the same time, why was there 120 people waiting inside an A&E department? Why was the, the, the corridor lined up with people, very elderly people in many instances, really upset at the fact that they had been there uh, for multiple of hours? There was one person there, uh, 36 hours. I mean, that's crazy to think of elderly people having to wait like that. That should not be happening in a civilised society. If you were below in Cuba, there is actually a better healthcare service and facilities than what we have. And we throw money at the problem. Seven and a half million, as you said last year. Exactly. So, I look, I mean, you know, you can keep on and on about it, mm. but they're not listening. And when they're not listening, desperate circumstances require uh, d- desperate actions. And that's why I am actively letting people know and carry that not only is it cataracts, but it's also hips, knees and other procedures mm-hmm. that if they're not going to do it here and if they're going to leave you waiting in pain or let you go blind or, or really let you in a bad way at home, well, there's nothing for us to do but take it into our own hands, organise the buses, take them up, which is what I do, mm-hmm. and, um, and I try and make it as, as nice and as comfortable for them as possible. And uh, and try and make it a good experience for them rather than a, 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 an upsetting experience. Okay. And as I said but, earlier, on, there were a lot no of people. thanks to the, the HSE, and it's no thanks to the people that are in charge. And and they, they really should take a long, uh, hard look at themselves and their jobs. What are they doing to earn their pay mm. if they're not able to take care of people who are relying upon them? All right. Well, as I said earlier on, there's a, a lot of people listening to us who were interested in what you had to say last time round. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people across Loud and Meath this morning who'll be interested to know that if they're on a waiting list, they can get the treatment done in Northern Ireland and have it then reimbursed to them by the HSE when they return. We will leave there for the moment. Thank, you, Thank you, as always, for joining us. Deputy Michael Healy Ray, an independent TD in Kerry. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we heard recently how there are no patrol cars available to community police in some of the biggest towns in the country, namely Drogheda and Dundalk. This is because the cars that they had either went over 300,000 kilometres on the clock or their engines had failed, and this has left Gardaí without any means of transport. They asked their colleagues for lifts or get a bus, as the case may be, or perhaps, I suppose, on occasion they might be able to walk. But it highlights an underinvestment in community policing and the ICSA is calling for additional funding for community policing and says that people in rural Ireland are living in fear. Seamus Sherlock is Rural Development Development Chairman for the ICSA and he's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme. The story about no patrol cars in Louth is quite shocking and stark indeed, but undoubtedly a reflection of an underinvestment across the country. Yes, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, as Rural Development Chairman, I would be attending meetings in nearly every county in Ireland. And even, you know, at meetings where crime wouldn't be on the agenda, it's usually brought onto the agenda by people sitting in the audience because, unfortunately, many, many of our more elderly people are living in fear. 
And the role of uh, the community police officer is as much to do with prevention as it has to do with catching those after the event as such. Yes, I mean, I've always called, and I say I've always been calling for community policing. Let's be honest, we're never going to get back to the good old days where there was a police station or a guard station in every village in Ireland. That's never going to happen again. But what we need to do is resource the, the guardie that the, that the men and women are given more time out on the beat. A lot of Gardaí are telling me that they're spending many, many hours of their week sitting behind the desk. And those men and women, you know, they joined the force to serve and to protect. And they'll be very frustrated, I'd say, at the fact that they're spending hours doing paperwork behind desks. And they should be out on the beat, you know, looking after the, the general public. A good example, perhaps, uh, is uh, in a, a couple of weeks' time uh, when we'll be celebrating Halloween and uh, already I think uh, there's concern about uh, some of uh, the bonfire plans, uh, but those plans uh, can be interrupted by community police officers. Yes, and, you know, if, even from a crime point of view, we're coming, unfortunately, the summer is nearly over, the evenings are drying in very fast, and a lot of older people and maybe more vulnerable people are facing a winter maybe living out in the wilds of rural Ireland where, you know, they feel they have very little protection. And, mm. and by the way, it's not the Gardaí's fault. I mean, the men and women in the force do Trojan work. We all appreciate that. They do absolutely Trojan work to get as, as many people helped as possible. But they're under-resourced. And we had a meeting in ICSA with the, the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, and I was very strong on these facts. And, you know, and I made it quite clear to the Minister that these men and women are being overstretched, are being pulled left, right and centre. As you say, their cars might be getting agey and, and mightn't be as good as they should be. And what we're calling on for what police are there, that they be fully resourced. And if people are isolated, living on their own and uh, feel somewhat anxious uh, about what might happen at night time in particular, I suppose they're on their own unless there's somebody in the community who's aware of their presence and uh, the danger that they face. Well, what we are, what we have always been saying in ICSA is that this has to be done with the community. Nobody should be left on their own. I mean, no matter how vulnerable anybody is, if they had neighbours that maybe had their phone number, you know, what we say to the old people is, you know, get the na- get the num- phone numbers of your couple of nearest neighbours, and I'm sure those men and women would answer the phone even mm. in the middle of the night if there was an elderly person that maybe heard something glass-breaking or thought they heard someone outside. Let's be honest, in the farming community, many, many times have we got up at 3 o'clock in the morning to help another man with a cow calf. And so I'm sure, you know, people will still do it for their, their neighbours, and rightly so. And we'd be urging communities to meet, talk about this, and to leave no vulnerable person, you know, alone. And, you know, make them feel that there is somebody there looking out for them. You know what I mean? Mm. The RD are overstretched. There's no doubt about that. Some people live maybe 40, 50 minutes away from the Garda station. And that's a very long time to wait if you feel somebody's breaking into your house. But if you could ring a couple of neighbours that would jump out of bed and come over and just support you, I think to go a long way to give a lot of these older people a good night's sleep. And I, I was reading recently as well that some community Gardaí are being asked uh, to stay in touch with the community by taking it on themselves and having uh, something like a, a WhatsApp group for people to make contact with them. But that's a fairly ad hoc approach, isn't it? Well, it is, but I mean, it's approach in the right direction. As I say, you know, we're, we're never going to get back to the local Garda station in every area. That's not going to happen in my view. So the people have to, you know, take some responsibility here as well. I know 
the Gardaí get a lot of stick. I don't believe that should be the way. I think rural policing, they're doing their very best. And I know a lot of Gardaí that work extra hours without ever even getting paid for it, mm. just to try do what they can. You know, they're working night and day and they're being pulled left, right and centre. But when the community sit down with them and help them, look, at I remember years ago, we always had the local Garda, he'd be over the hurling team or the football team and he knew everybody that should be in the parish, but more importantly, he knew who shouldn't be in the parish. You know what I mean? And we, and we must get back to those days where people feel safe and that our elderly people can sleep in peace. I think it's, I think it's shocking that our elderly people, and they worked so hard. I mean, let's be honest, they worked night and day and they deserve to be able to finish out their lives in peace. Okay. They should not be, you know what I mean? And, I, and can I just say as well, any of your listeners there, ICSA is very fortunate. We've, we've great people working, you know, we have Gavin Carey, our tillage chairman is from Loud. Emmett Mullen is doing excellent work in Mead. Emmett is new to the organisation and Emmett has grabbed the and, you know, is, is working extremely hard with local communities. And if any of your listeners in those counties have a problem, please contact our chairman and they will sit down and do everything in their power to help them. Seamus, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Seamus Sherlock is the ICSA Rural Development Chairman. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Gronier from Drogheda was in touch and she says it's interesting to see who will benefit in this budget, Michael, hoping that the middle income people are not going to be ignored as we are the ones paying for everything but getting very little relief and nothing in terms of grants or supports when it comes to college and education. Okay. We also had a phone call from James who phoned in to say that he has read that all people on welfare are to get a full bonus at Christmas. He doesn't begrudge anybody a bonus, but he thinks everybody should get something extra in their wage packet at Christmas time. Says that many companies don't give bonuses anymore at Christmas and it's hard on those working all year round who also have big expenses at this time of year. Okay, well I suppose we don't really know what's in the budget until it's uh, announced. Uh, The Taoiseach did say uh, that uh, there will be something done in terms of welfare. You were saying that uh, the cuts of uh, the last decade or so will be reversed, uh, but I think the speculation is uh, that all welfare recipients will receive in around €5 extra a week and uh, the details of all of that, of course, uh, tomorrow afternoon when the Minister takes to his feet. We had a text from a listener who was listening in to the interview with Sean Healy and says, he quotes Sean Healy as saying, we have the resources, we must build more council houses. And the listener says, more play acting and three card tricks from the extreme left lurching priest. We would need to borrow another 30 billion on top of the 200 billion that we have already borrowed to pay for our over generous welfare and public servant gravy train to provide the houses that he is demanding we also had a listener in touch in relation to a couple of listeners actually Michael had comments in relation to your interview regarding cataracts Mm. and the need for treatment well done Michael says a listener I'm three months in pain and I'm on a waiting list with no dates yet don't even know if I'm on the right waiting lists. It's a total disgrace that when you're in so much pain and no diagnosis that you're just left on waiting lists. Some doctors don't want you going private and will give you a number to ring or tell you to basically find somebody for yourself. 
says this listener. We had a text in from Councillor Sharon Kilgan on the same topic and she says, great to hear Michael Healy Ray talk about the cross-border directive being available to patients. I've promoted this for years. However, people must be seen by a consultant here first. My own mother last week had a problem with her hearing. She was told she would have to wait two years on the waiting list to be seen, rang the matter private and got an appointment the following day. The health service is not for the poor or the working class, says Councillor Kyogen. Now you see why the Healy Rays get elected time after time. How many of our elected TDs do this? OK, well, we'll be expecting uh, the Kyogen bus uh, to be announced in the coming days. <laughs> Deirdre is wondering why we are sending our patients to the north. She says we should run our hospitals as a 24-7 service to reduce the backlog of people waiting for procedures, even if it means sending patients down the country, it would help to reduce the massive waiting list that we have. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Says Deirdre. Okay. On housing, Charlie from Navin phoned in to say that he thinks the will is simply not there by the government to sort out problems like housing and hospital waiting lists once and for all. Okay. Uh, another listener on your interview there with Seamus uh, Sherlock. Michael, many people living in isolated communities are terrified. The loss of so much Garda power. Uh, manpower and the closure of guard stations in rural areas did have uh, a huge implications. People are very concerned and there does need to be action taken so that people can feel safe in their own home again. All right, well... Uh, there's a, a lot there and uh, indeed uh, some of it uh, might be addressed in uh, the budget tomorrow in terms of uh, the concerns that people have about the delivery of healthcare. There's been a lot of concerns over the years in relation to healthcare and of course cervical check has caused many people to be concerned about uh, the reliability of uh, the national screening service for cervical can- cancer. There's been a, a number of uh, people who've come forward to 
to tell their story, including Emma Vic Vahuna, who developed cervical cancer after getting incorrect results from two smear tests. As undoubtedly you know at this stage, or indeed if uh, you go into any news agents this morning, you'll be suddenly uh, aware uh, Emma died yesterday. Uh, she's on the front page of all of uh, the papers pretty much uh, this morning. A, a mother of f- five from Dublin who moved to, to Bally David. Uh, and because of the mistakes, she received a settlement of €7.5 million Euro in June from Quest Laboratories and indeed the Irish state. Uh, but as she said at the time, uh, that uh, would not compensate her for her life that she was about to lose. Uh, She has passed away since uh, and it has uh, been something that has made uh, the country pause as indeed this interview that Emma gave uh, to RTE in May just gone. And we should be able to hear a little bit of what she had to say then and how the whole uh, diagnosis and indeed learning uh, that uh, she'd been given incorrect results uh, how all of that had an impact on her. The 2013 smear said that I was healthy when I wasn't. And because of that then, I actually developed cancer. And now I'm dying. And if the smear test was right, and I was told this by my gynaecologist, who is over three hospitals, so he knows his stuff. This guy is amazing. And he told me himself that if my smear test was right in 2013, I wouldn't be where I am today. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking. I'm dying when I don't need to die. And my children are going to be without without me. And I'm going to be without them. And I try to do everything right by, you know, breastfeeding and being a full-time mom and sacrificing you know, my own life with them. I didn't see it as a sacrifice. And now I'm I'm going to miss out. And, and I don't even know if my little baby's going to remember me. And what just makes this whole situation so sick is that the government aren't doing anything about it. And when it first broke out, I was like, OK, well, the head of the HSC is surely going to do something. And he didn't. And then I looked to Simon Harris, I was thinking, well, surely the Minister for Health is going to step in and do something. That's how we give these people powers. And he didn't do anything. So then I was like, surely the Taoiseach is going to do something. And he just seems to be sticking up for them. And they're all hiding there in the door, and they don't see what I see. And, like... There's women that are dead, and there doesn't just any women. They're like people's daughters and their mommies, and all the children are in so much pain. And I just, uh, my stance on it is, I think the only person that can do something now is the president. And I never actually thought I'd say something like that in a country in 2018 in Ireland. Because the government needs to go. They're not actually... And I'm not being insulting, it's genuine. They're not actually capable of minding us. And that is their job, to make sure that we're okay. And I'm dying and I didn't even need to die. And I'm only 37 and 
You know, like last night I was in bed and I was having this really bad dream. I dreamt that I was dying last night and I wasn't ready because I hadn't said goodbye to my children. And in my dream I was trying to ring 999 but I couldn't like pick up the phone. So in my dream I had gone into Natasha Street Seats across to London. And I was trying to wake her up so that I could say goodbye to her because I hadn't said goodbye. And then I woke up and I was like, God, thank, thank God I haven't died yet because I want to say goodbye to them. And this isn't fair. And no amount of money can replace, like, can replace this. The late Emma Vic Verhoene, uh, who died yesterday aged 37. Now let's go back to more of your thoughts and comments. Marie, what else have you got for us? Everything just seems insignificant nearly, Michael, after that, doesn't it? Um, we had Jean from Dundalk in touch with us just regard in regards to the cataract operations. And Jean says that she was a cataract patient who had to go to the north to get treatment. She said that she would have been waiting two years if she was to get it in the south which would mean that she wouldn't be able to go to her job as a child care assistant. She said it was all very successful except for uh, the, the remuneration from the Irish government that the procedure took place in June and she's still waiting for her money back on that. OK, and we heard uh, the doctors this weekend talk about uh, the prospect of people going blind mm-hmm. and irreversibly so uh, because of uh, the waiting time lengths. John from Navin was in touch regarding the housing situation. He feels that the housing crisis got really bad in 2015 and he thinks the problem is the boom. He says that there are a huge number of people coming into the country every year and they all have to be housed. He thinks that multinational companies are partially to blame, that a lot of people are coming into the country to work and he also wonders why he is hearing so much about single mothers struggling to make ends meet. He says that it used to be the father's response to look after children. Okay, thanks for that, John, and uh, everybody who has been in touch with us uh, today for that matter. We'll uh, come back to some more comments, hopefully, okay. uh, a little bit later in the programme. Thanks for that, Marie. Uh, and indeed, if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael Reed on LMFM. On Thursday week, European leaders will meet once again in Brussels and uh, the October summit will be one uh, that may end up uh, deciding uh, the history between the European countries uh, that make up uh, the Union now with Britain set to leave and uh, 27 other countries wondering how that's going to happen. By the time the leaders go home uh, that weekend, uh, it's quite possible there'll be a, a map forward there may not be if there is they'll probably meet again in November and try to finalise it Uh, but there is some confidence growing in relation to what has appeared to be impossible up to now with the uh, President of the European Council saying last week uh, that an agreement is possible by the end of uh, this year Donald Tusk's sentiment was echoed by Jean-Claude Juncker the head of the European Commission who said that uh, the chances of a deal being reached has increased. We're joined by Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael, MEP and Vice President of the European Parliament. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, do you believe uh, that there is uh, the prospect of a, a deal at this stage? Well, I think your introduction summarises where we are today, which is post the Conservative Party conference where there was a lot of rhetoric and, and noise and maybe anger. 
uh, in some of the speeches, we now are into a hope a period of calm. And I think that's reflected in the mood music which is being created uh, by comments made uh, from the Commission, the Council and indeed ourselves that, you know, we, we do have to reach an agreement and it is perhaps because we're getting closer to the end game that we have to say that an agreement is possible. I think the only area where there's some doubt over is whether it will happen in the way you say in October. Um, there is a, a longer meeting proposed, so that may be to thrash out some details, but there is an expectation that things might run into November, mm-hmm. but certainly not beyond that date. But it, it, it's expected that a, a minimum there would be a blueprint in October that might be finalised in November, isn't it? I, yes, I, mm. I think that's the thinking. I, I, look, the, the biggest hurdle, and we all know this, is that there is at the moment a draft withdrawal text. It's a legal document. If we look at the issue that we've talked about, uh, which is the Irish issue, the border question, mm. the text as written is not acceptable, uh, according to the UK. They want something different. And they've had until since rather last March to come up with something different. And we expect them to do that in the coming days before the council. We don't know what exactly will be uh, the written word, but we're hoping to see it. But and they're, they're, they're talking, are they not? Or at least the speculation is that instead of the backstop, as we've discussed up until recently, which would mean regulatory alignment for Northern Ireland, they're talking about a UK-wide backstop. Well, that's their position because not, they're not talking about that in the withdrawal agreement. To some extent, they're, what they're doing is um, doing the second part first. Uh, they want to talk about the future relationship so that they don't have to deal with the withdrawal agreement. But again, while the mood music is good, it was also very clear from Juncker and Tusk and, and uh, ourselves that the withdrawal agreement has to be in place. We can map out a general framework on the future, but we cannot do the detail before the UK leaves in March. So that at some point, the British Prime Minister, and I I believe she's coming to this point, knows that the withdrawal agreement comes first. And the only reason the backstop is required is where all else fails. And whatever wording is required for the United Kingdom Mm. to accept that they don't want a hard border, we don't want a hard border, but we have to find words to make sure there's a legal certainty around that. I mean, it has taken a rather long period of time. I think because the DUP are in pole position in terms of holding up the, the, propping up rather, the British government and are making noises and demands that are incompatible to some extent with what the British Prime Minister needs to do. So, yes, there is a positivity. Mm. Uh, I do think that the, the mood music is, is better, and it had to be better because there were moments where I thought this was certainly going off the rails. Um, and I'm hoping that it will be cracked, if you like, by the British Prime Minister coming forward with new wording on the withdrawal agreement. Now, that's not to say that she may also try to manoeuvre on the future relationship as well. But I've been very clear, both publicly and privately, when I meet uh, the British side, that, look, you must do things in sequence and you must live up to the commitments you made of December of uh, last year and again in March. And the whole trouble has been that in the, the last, well, since the Brexit vote, there is still deep divisions in UK society and in UK politics, mm. particularly in the Conservative Party. And, uh, and I mean, there are those who, 
When you talk about finding the words, uh, is uh, that political pragmatism? That's the word, yeah. Um, for um, fudge and kicking it down the road and giving everybody the opportunity to save face uh, because uh, this is a, a way of putting this off for a couple of years, isn't it? Well, I don't think we can put off something that everybody absolutely has signed up to, which is no hard border on the island of Ireland, because I think the people I represent in Midlands Northwest along the border and the communities who live along the border, but on the island generally, don't want any semblance of the past in terms of stopping uh, at customs or anything like that. Um, I, I don't accept the word fudge, but I think pragmatism is a better word, even if it's harder to say. And I think pragmatism has to come from the UK side and the EU side on this. And we also have to step back from some of the megaphone diplomacy that has happened in recent times. I think, you know, we all have to remember that if the atmosphere is calm, then people can move forward. My, my sense is that the British Prime Minister, she had a reasonably good party conference, dancing included. Um, I think she is expecting and predicting that nobody in the UK will vote for a no deal, although perhaps some of her Brexiteers would, but that she will have the weight of support to reach an agreement, which then, and this is the difficult part, has to get through the European Parliament here, obviously, but more importantly, where the difficulties might lie is in the British House of Commons, where things are not so simple or straightforward. And the Scottish National Party, which is 35 seats, have said they will vote against because anything that doesn't have customs union and single market, they will vote out. So I think that's where she's going to have to muster the numbers to get whatever deal she comes to with the European Union across the line. But I did sense even in her body language and in her own demeanour that she feels some confidence that she will reach that place. Mm. That you can never predict because we haven't been able to predict the last two years. And that um, clock is so ticking, though. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, whatever about the October summit, uh, November 12th, uh, I think, is uh, the date uh, that they expect. It really is the date, yeah. And, and the reason for that is, and we were just having a conversation, a meeting here in the office in Brussels this morning, when you look at our calendar for next year, mm. that realistically, if nothing happens in November, then all of the legal requirements and votes and debates cannot happen in time for the end of March. So we anticipate that a deal in November will come to the committee that I sit on, the the Constitutional Affairs, uh, at the end of the year, December, and then we will go to plenary with it in January or February at the latest. Now, in parallel with that timeline, we'll also be keeping an eye on the UK House of Commons because I don't think the European Parliament will be rushing ahead with its vote if we have any sense that the um, House of Commons might reject what's on the table. So I think we're going to be having these... um, bumps, if you like, up until, well, not the end of March, but certainly the end of February in terms of procedure. But the key is that a progress is made in October. Mm. I think there's an expectation of that. And if it doesn't happen, I think there will be a real body blow to confidence around the table. And then secondly, November is when this happens. I mean, I, I, when I look back at all of the meetings and conversations, indeed, you know, talking to you and others uh, in the media about this subject, it has eaten into so much time. It has taken so much energy. And yet it's crucial that in these final days we get something across the line. But in particular, 
that delivers for the island of Ireland question. Uh, I suppose that's what I was asking you about in terms of, of if it was possibly a fudge and putting it, pushing it out for two years that we're going to spend the next couple of years uh, in uh, this interim period before Brexit kicks in fully talking about mm. how to do it properly. Well, we, let me just put this in sequence, that should all things work and we get a, um, a legal text where both sides are comfortable, will deliver for invisible borders on the island of Ireland. After March, we then get into the detail to make sure that we don't have to use that, because essentially mm. we all want to develop a future relationship with the United Kingdom where we don't require the necessity or, of using the backstop. However, that is a difficult process, but I think without the backstop, we can't move forward. Mm because it would leave too many things um, vague, and I think it would be too damaging and dangerous. And apart from our sense of history and the concerns we'd have around the border, remember that there are many businesses, and many in the agribusiness sector that I know particularly well, but other businesses that have just frozen any investment plans. And that's, you know, common both in the mm. Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. So I don't think we're what we will want to see that kind of freeze frame held because that's damaging. No, but I, I suppose that's best case scenario. And in that scenario, there's a, a couple of years to iron out some pretty complicated matters. Uh, worst case scenario, it's a, a no deal and uh, the United Kingdom crashes out and uh, we've to live in that new world. And uh, the government's contingency planning uh, is underway for such a scenario. Simon Carswell was reporting in the Irish Times that there's at least 40 pieces of legislation and amendments to existing legislation that the government is working on in the event of no agreement. Yeah, I mean, that's going on. That preparation has to go on. Um, and indeed, there were there's lots of meetings around Brexit, um, uh, Mees County Council and the Chamber. I attended a meeting with Minister Helen McEntee recently where lots of businesses came. And it, even though there were concerns, there was also positivity about let's get on and, and do this. But there is one glitch in all of this. Um, when the British Prime Minister, or if she goes back to the House of Commons and says, there's no deal, do you think she'll get that through a vote? Because that's a question that nobody seems to be able to answer. And I don't think she will. And therefore, I don't even understand the consequences should the House of Commons reject that. So I'm afraid that every question we ask and answer we mm. give has a caveat to it. And the only way forward, and I think the British know this, but they're, they've been difficult to, to get to this point, is to agree the backstop, the legal text, and to negotiate the future, rather than trying to have everything sorted for the future and reverse it into a withdrawal agreement. It's very clear how this has to be done, and it's been extraordinary to hear some very leading British uh, politicians uh, not understand this process and this timeline. But, uh, you know, as I said, and you, you started this conversation by saying the mood music has improved. I think let's take that as a real positive because we only have weeks to go by November. And, it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm ageing myself, but I just feel that time is marching on in a way which people had not anticipated. And we don't want to run out of road. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. And uh, thank you, by the way, for getting me over my stuttering as pragmatically as you did earlier in the interview. I've had those moments us. myself, Mike. No, so I have them all the time. Right. <laughs> right. Thank you very much indeed for joining us as well. Maureen McGuinness-Fidegale, MEP, Vice President of the European Parliament.
Now, on Friday, two separate oil laundering plants uh, were discovered in County Louth. We're joined by Sinn Féin Councillor Rory O'Murku uh, to talk uh, about this. Good morning, Rory, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. What more do you know about this? As I understand it, uh, they uh, happened uh, upon these sites, almost accidentally discovered them. Well, yeah, well, I spoke to, uh, I rang the Gardaí initially and here, uh, the guard I was talking to said that he would be back in contact with me in relation to information, and I assume that's going to be somewhat limited on the basis that um, there's a process in operation now at the minute. I also spoke to Loud County Council, and what they said was the information that's out there, their environmental enforcement team, in tandem with Angarda Siakana, um, carried out an inspection in relation to waste in uh, Mill Park in Knockbridge, and then, like the paper state, uh, a commercial premises was uh, investigated or searched by revenue officers. And I'm assuming you have the same information as me. That's mm-hmm. approximately 5,000 litres of illicit fuel, a lorry, an adapted refrigerated trailer, a van containing barrels of diesel sludge, bleaching agent and various tanks and pumping equipment. Uh, so little doubt as to what all of that equipment was being used for. Yes, exactly. And I suppose um, at one stage we were all told and believed that there had been a marker that had been in the in in commercial diesel um, and that that was going to sort all the problems out. Mm. I know that we put in a number of parliamentary questions that would have been directly from Jerry Adams in relation to the fact that um, there had been a number of cases of dumping of diesel sludge in the last while and we had asked questions as to whether this marker had been breached, broken or removed. Now, up to a couple of months ago, our information was that it hadn't been, but then we seen the piece that was on LMFM, I think it was in the Mirror and also the Argus, where they're talking about the fact that diesel is being boiled to take the marker out of it. Now, I'm not a chemist, but along with everything else that's wrong with diesel laundering as regards the sludge, the environmental waste, the cost of cleaning it. Obviously, boiling diesel sounds to me incredibly dangerous to the people that are doing it and anyone that would be in close proximity. Doesn't sound good. Uh, That marker you talk about is uh, a new marker, uh, which uh, they hoped would put an end to laundering. That was introduced in April of 2015, I think. Yeah, and it seemed that for a long time um, you had a reduction in obviously the amount of sludge dumpings for the want of a better term but they seem to have increased in the last while and you know my information as well from you know the Gardaí is that this is an ongoing serious problem whereas there probably was a period when it had reduced and obviously this is not anything you want to see you know as I say the loss of revenue the environmental disaster that is the sludge and the cost to Loud County Council the loss to the state at a time when we can't afford it when we need money whether it's for maintenance or whether it's for housing or whatever else we definitely don't need to be spending on, on cleaning up incredibly expensive sludge Mm, I think it's uh, the Department of the Environment that ends up uh, paying yeah. for the cost, uh, but ultimately it comes back on all of us in every oh, part yeah, of the country. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. I accept it, Sam, yes. No doubt about it. Uh, but uh, if uh, they are laundering fuel in Knockbridge, well, then they can do it. Uh, uh, but where where do they sell it on to? Well, here, I have no information in relation to it, but the fact is, 
like we can all assume that nobody comes up with stuff to sell unless they have they have a source an outlet something like that so it has to be sold through some sort of scenario whether that's in a legal um illegal petrol or diesel mm. setup or whether it's through something else because I don't want to make claims I obviously can't stand over but they're not going putting this sort of operation in in so that they can literally keep the stuff themselves. This isn't for personal. I assume this is a hell of a lot. This is a lot of diesel, so I assume this isn't yep. for personal consumption. No, 5,000 litres, uh, and probably only uh, the tip of uh, the iceberg uh, in terms of an operation like this. Uh, but well, yeah, uh, as you, you said. You have to assume, yeah, you have to assume that this operation has been ongoing for a long time, even the fact that questions were raised, but obviously the county council as regards their need for an inspection and whatever else, you have to assume there's a, there has been ongoing uh, process or operations. Mm-hmm. But if you go back four or five years uh, when this was commonplace, uh, people would have been very concerned. Uh, indeed, uh, people would have complained that they'd been stopped, tested and prosecuted as a result of having laundered fuel in their car, uh, something that they weren't aware of. There was advice uh, to bring with you and hold on to receipts uh, when you go to petrol stations and the like and uh, to be on the lookout. I suppose a lot of us put that in the back burner thinking uh, that this had been tackled successfully because of the new marker. Yes, no, no, I agree. I remember that period four or five years ago and the amount of people who said it to me that sometimes I can be slow on the uptake that I started doing it myself. I started maintaining receipts from wherever you bought and I like I was never dipped and I never had a problem in relation to it. But the yeah, uh, I, I had known of a number of people who said they were very glad that they had done that. Now, hopefully we'll see the Gardaí and as I say, state chemists and whoever else get on top of this problem because obviously if a workaround has been found and what sounds like a very dangerous workaround, well then that's a no win for anyone else. And also I, I suppose the other thing is did this diesel and the sludge and the process and, and all of it, like it, the end product that someone's getting in their car can't be up to spec. This has to be doing damage to engines and, and whatever else. Well, it destroys engines quite often, yeah. doesn't it? And people are, are, are paying what they believe is top dollar legally uh, 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 and uh, unknowingly getting this stuff uh, from what they thought was legitimate petrol stations. At least that's been uh, the suspicion uh, for some time up to the introduction of the new marker. Yeah, no, no, I accept that. That was the belief. That's why people maintained their receipts was on that basis, yes. And obviously that's not a situation we want. And even literally just that fact of the boiling within this process, I would like to think that people wouldn't involve themselves, even people who may previously have, in any of this, just from the point of view, the abject danger that they are putting themselves and other people in. Mm. Uh, It sounds like it would have been a busy operation and that somebody in the locality or maybe a lot of people in the locality may have noticed unusual activity let's say uh, and uh, may have wondered if laundering was taking place but would have been afraid to come forward with that information because quite often uh, this is linked to to criminality uh, and all sorts Well here like this sort of operation is a it's a criminal operation straightforward if you 
Uh, simple as that. Now, if people have information, they should always feel free and they should always go to the Gardaí and whoever else. And it's quite possible that somebody went to either the council or the Gardaí in this situation. And in fairness, they're not going to release that information on the basis of protection to someone who is providing, you know, valuable mm. intelligence. And again, sometimes people, you know, might only be worried, but they are better to deal with their worries and to pass this information on if there are something that may possibly be a dangerous or a criminal operation in action. Well, in itself it's criminal uh, but uh, I, I was alluding to something else in that going back years uh, I think a lot of people would have associated laundering with uh, the provosts and armed gangs carrying out this uh, kind of activity and today may think it's something similar albeit with dissidents. Well, people can claim whatever and I suppose here the Sunday Independent never let truth get in the way of a good story but people the reality is this has never been put on the door of republicans uh, the reality is um this is i'm here representing Sinn Féin we have stood soundly against criminality and against diesel laundering and all sorts of operations like that and we would call on anyone with information in relation to it to go to the authorities be it the councils be it the guardy be it whatever or indeed yourself, I'm sure, if uh, oh, people yeah, no, are comfortable uh, doing that. Well, an awful lot of people in an awful lot of situations, you know what I mean, are a mm. lot more comfortable going to uh, elected reps and whatever in relation to passing on information to the to the council, to the guardie, to whatever. Yeah, and here they may be right or wrong in that, but obviously in a situation like that, I would have no difficulty in bringing that information uh, to the state authorities. Okay, Rory, we leave there and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Fein Councillor in Louth, Rory O'Murku. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, SIF2 Health Division met in Cork last week with Division Organiser Paul Bell telling the conference that SIF2 has served formal notice on the HSE that it is seeking pay rises for healthcare assistance and other health service support staff. This is on foot of a job evaluation, and Paul Bell is on the line. I understand that this could result in in increases of uh, between three and four thousand euro a year for your members. Good morning, Michael. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me on the show this morning. Uh, to put it in context, uh, the job evaluation process uh, for support staff employed within the health service executives and Section 38 organisations uh, had been suspended for the period uh, of the FEMPI legislation. Now, one concession was made by government on the Lansdowne Road 1, which is the public service stability agreement, that job evaluation could be reintroduced, and that happened in 2015, 2016. Uh, and the evaluation process then was organised, and as we understand it over the last number of days, certain key groups in support staff grades uh, have been successful uh, in successfully uh, achieving what we would know now as a, an upgrading of their position. So is this the next step in what was uh, agreed, uh, that it was agreed that there would be an evaluation, the evaluation has found that there should be an increase, so the next step is to pay that increase? Well, it's going to be slightly more complex than that, Michael, but it is part of the agreement, and that's the point that we need to make. This is not a separate pay claim. It's, strictly speaking, part of the existing agreements that we have. Uh, what we've done, we've identified that the evaluation process uh, has confirmed that healthcare assistance, 
uh, and some other key support staff working in laboratories or working in sterilisation processes and in theatre uh, are indeed entitled to an upgrade of their position. Uh, what we have done, obviously, keeping uh, conscious that there's a budgetary requirement here and a, a fiscal impact, I suppose, that we've communicated to the Health Service Executive last week requesting a meeting on the basis of understanding what's the HSE's intention of implementing the findings of the report. And we would hope that the implementation uh, of these upgradings would commence next year. And that it would be incremental? Oh, absolutely incremental. Mm. And just to explain to listeners, uh, there are four incremental uh, scales for support staff grades uh, within the health service. Uh, Number four being the lowest uh, and number one being the highest. Most of our healthcare assistants lie in the grade of grade three or band three, as as commonly known. Uh, So most of those uh, healthcare assistants will will, uh, rise to band two. And in some smaller cases will go to band one which will be again a significant uh, a significant increase however what what the job evaluation process has also discovered michael is that many of our members have indeed been underpaid for their roles for maybe a, a nine-year period which is quite disturbing in itself uh, but that basically came about because of less people being in the health service more responsibilities being taken on uh, and a greater uh, exposure to duties that not not normally would they have been exposed to. Okay, and they're Section 38 workers, uh, as you put it, meaning they work in the public health service. The health service executive is the uh, is the obviously the direct public service. Section 38 organisations would be organisations very familiar to your listeners, Michael, mm. which would be Beaumont Hospital, the Matter Public Hospital, St Vincent's, Tala, St James's. So while they have their own boards to direct the mm. operations of the hospital, they are directly funded for public services. Uh, uh, from the government and also people employed in those hospitals are public servants. Okay, because you've also been pursuing a a pay claim for people in Section 39 Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, is a a different set of people. You were somewhat successful but you say that that claim has not ended as yet. Oh no, absolutely not. Uh, uh, Correct, Michael, to say there has been some success uh, and a very hard battle fought so far for employees in Section 39 organisations Organisations like Rehab Care, National Learning Network, um, those kind of organisations, the Irish Wheelchair Association, which will be household names. Um, We've been fighting the battle to retain the pay link which some of those organisations have with the public service for their members for pay purposes. As of last Tuesday, what we're able to to agree was that the Workplace Relations Commission brokered a deal between the Department of Health, the Health Service Executive, SIP2, and other trade unions operating within the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, a deal that will see the uh, recommencement of pay restoration uh, with payments beginning in April of 2019. Uh, but as we've made it quite clear, because it's pay restoration, there will be other claims that will have to be served at a future time. But these uh, proposals have been put to our members who are involved in the ballot for strike action or have been listed as one of the 50 organisations initially to be considered for pay restoration. Um, Again, Michael, Mm. there are 302 organisations involved in this claim. The first 50 have been agreed upon now with the remaining 250 uh, to be discussed in January 2019 of how that formula is now going to apply to those organisations. 
an extremely difficult battle because the government's intention all along uh, for the past eight years was to actually break the pay relationship for Section 39 workers where they had one with the public service or public service pay scales. And we've been successful in turning that around. But again, there's much more work to be done. But having struggled from January 2017 on this issue, and I spoke about this many times in your program, we're quite satisfied that this is a very, very significant step forward. But our members will be the judge of that when we put it to ballot over the coming weeks. Okay, and that's two separate pay claims as such. Uh, But let's uh, expand this out uh, across all of uh, the health service and uh, delegates at your conference last last week, voted on bringing forward the date for talks on a successor to the public service pay agreement that's in place now. Yeah, so you're referring to Motion 8 uh, of the Health Division by Endegla Conference in Cork. Uh, where members are conscious that the public service stability agreement has been stable and has been successful for them going forward in the area of pay restoration. Now, of course, many of our members now, Michael, will start to appear, uh, experience a period of pay progression, which basically indicates that now that they've started to recover salary, they now need to look at the next steps going forward about increases in pay. Uh, what our members have asked for is basically that a conversation uh, about the successor agreement to the public service stability agreement would not be let roll into 2020, but that those negotiations tentatively at least would begin mid-2019. Now that is significant because it gives an indication if government are determined to have another pay agreement, another uh, public service stability agreement or not, it will also understand then uh, if the public service will deal with the government right across the board, and in particular in health, where we have this constant uh, concern about the implementation and funding of Sloucher Care, uh, would the government be interested in getting into that kind of conversation? It will also, I suppose, uh, give an indication of what kind of certainty and stability uh, can both employees in the public service understand that they're going to experience, and also under, we'd also have a good, clear understanding about the stability of finances of the state going forward into the next number of years. Of course, one one has to still look over their shoulder at what's going to happen with Brexit, but that's basically where the motion is coming from. It is not a pay claim per se, it is a call for compensation. But is it a, a affordable? I, I mean, people are going to look to the Minister for Finance uh, tomorrow when he announces uh, the budget and how he got €1 billion Euro last week unexpectedly because of corporation taxes coming in much higher than had been anticipated. Uh, and what's he going to do with that billion euro? Is he going to build the houses? Is he going to implement Slongecare? Is he going to pay for overtime for the Gardaí, build the roads or the schools or whatever the case may be? And no is the answer to most of those questions because he'll tell us it's already gone because of an overspend in health. So can we continue to increase wages in health? Well, at the end of the day, increasing wages and health is is always going to be a challenge for government. It's also going to be a challenge for the trade union movement. Uh, But right, because at the end, you still have to make sure that you have people that you're going to employ, that you're going to retain them. And that's the challenge. However, health workers are public servants, so they are covered by the public service stability agreement, are covered by the public service pay commission or job evaluation. Uh, we've always challenged government uh, about the amount of money that they invest in the, in the health service. 
and Michael, you and I would have had this conversation 12 months ago when we would have been talking about how much money is going to be made available for the overall budget of the health service in the provision that they're meant to give. As the minister himself, Minister Harris, would have said yesterday in media reports, is that obviously the health service is a demand-driven service. The one stable thing that you can agree in uh, in a budget is how much money is going to be spent on wages because huge huge amounts of the funding for health services or any public service depends on the people that you're working for. However, we did say in December last year with the estimates for the HSE, as did the former uh, Chief Executive Tony O'Brien, that the budget would not carry the health service through the year for service provision. And that's proven to be with a 700 million euro deficit. Now, if we understand what's causing that, but it can't be the actual wages because that's budgeted for right from the start. But what seems to be happening is that the estimate or the budget for the health service seems to be set in such a way that it's always doomed to question or doomed to failure. And we, we are very much concerned about that because what we are watching tomorrow for the budget is what the minister is going to do about investing money in slauncher care, uh, investing money in services going forward, okay. not necessarily on wages. All right, we'll see what he has to say. I have to leave it there because our time has run out. And thank, thank you, you very much. for joining us this morning. That's Paul Bell, Divisional Organiser with SIP2's Health Division, bringing our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast available on lmfm.ie this afternoon if you'd like to listen back. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing and Ross Leahy for researching. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Botox Cosmetic. Out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So... Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.